Welcome back to Historical Context. Today we continue our series on the colonies during the English Commonwealth. We talked about Maryland last week. That's where we left off, and we're going to talk more today. Last week we left off in 1655 when Maryland was under the control of the Virginia commissioners. And Governor William Stone, or former Governor Stone, if you will, having found out that Lord Protector Cromwell actually recognized him as the legitimate governor of Maryland, raises an army, seizes the colony's records, and heads north to Providence to confront his political opposition. Stone and his allies were under the impression that Oliver Cromwell uh, had wanted the Virginia commissioners to take Maryland back. And, and basically, they would be the liaison, the political liaison between the Commonwealth. And Commissioners Richard Bennett and William Claiborne had been pretending that narrative this entire time. Only when a letter to Governor Stone from Oliver Cromwell in January of 1655 shows up did Stone learn the truth. In the letter, Cromwell addressed Stone as the governor of the colony, and he also added that Lord Baltimore's title to Maryland had not been revoked. So Cromwell is recognizing Baltimore's claim, Lord Baltimore's claim, and Stone as governor. There is no known first-hand accounts of some of these events, but I've pieced together some of the information from reliable sources to share the story. Stone separates his forces and marches some by land and sails some by sea towards Providence. He arrives at Providence on March 24th with approximately 12 vessels. Captain Fuller, in charge of the defense of the town, convinces the captain of one of the two boats that came in and delivered the message to Stone, we talked about that last week, to help defend the town. This ship's captain was a man by the name of Roger Hemans. And he actually ends up firing at William Stone's fleet. Stone's forces pull back to a place known as Horns Point, a spot to the south of Providence, to set up an overnight encampment. The next day, Captain Fuller sails north out of Providence and west down College Creek, landing southwest of the town and moves east towards Governor Stone's position. Captain Fuller's men outnumbered William Stone's 175 to 130. As Captain Fuller's forces approached, he gave the order not to fire the first shot. Stone's men saw the army, someone fired a warning shot, and then approximately five guns were fired from Stone's side. The first shots killed Captain Fuller's standard bearer, and that's the man who carries the flag. Captain Fuller's men fired a volley, which caused some of Stone's men to take cover and others to fall back. Stone's forces were forced back to the end of the peninsula, and in 30 minutes the battle was over, with Captain Fuller being victorious. After two of Stone's men were executed, 
and two died of their wounds. The total death count was 17 for Stone's men and two for Captain Fuller. Keep in mind through all of this that William Stone is a Puritan. He came to the New World in 1619 before Plymouth and the Plymouth Pilgrims. He originally settled in Virginia before coming to Maryland. And now he has just found himself in a position where he apparently has grown apart from the ideology of England. While the Battle of Severn was short, it is considered the first battle in America between Englishmen and the only battle of the English Civil War to occur in America. So it's an official battle of the English Civil War located in America. When you look at the Council of Maryland minutes, there is no mention of the battle or the fact that William Stone was sentenced to death afterwards. Stone's life was spared because some of the women in Providence begged the leadership to spare it. In the August 1655 council minutes, we see Michael Brook, Robert Pott, Woodman Stockley, and Sampson Waring being named commissioners of Maryland. But you have to think that at some point England is going to weigh in on this. In January 1656, Lord Baltimore filed a complaint to Lord Protector Cromwell regarding the conduct of Richard Bennett and Captain William Claiborne. And you had to think this was coming. Baltimore complained that four men had been shot and killed in cold blood, and he requested that he be provided restitution. For reasons that appear only known to him, Lord Baltimore decided to make a leadership change in the summer of 1656 and named Josias Fendall as the new governor. It is uncertain why Cecil Calvert chose this timing. While one may argue that Calvert wanted to get away from the controversy created by William Stone firing on a group of other men, Josias Fendall was one of Stone's senior officers at the Battle of Severn, so he was hardly separate from that situation. He was also sentenced to death and spared, much like Stone. So the actions of that day are probably not a driving force to Lord Baltimore. It, it's possible William Stone, now getting up there in years, I believe he is in his mid to late 50s at the time, may have just decided it was enough. Calvert does hint at some rationale in his message appointing Fendall. Let's have a look at the writing. Nevertheless, upon consideration that the people there cannot subsist and continue in peace and safety without some good government be settled and established, as well for the cherishing and supporting of the good people, and well affected as for the punishment of the vicious and disorderly persons there, we have thought fit to nominate, constitute, and appoint, and we do hereby nominate, constitute, and appoint Josiah Fendel of the province of Maryland in America our governor. Maybe it's the fact that Stone stepped aside so easily. I, I don't know that caused this to happen, but he talks about 
peace and safety. So he must think that Fendall can bring it. William Stone was not totally cast out, though he was appointed to the Council of Maryland. There was another hiccup on top of this current situation, and that is on August 15th, Josias Fendall was jailed by the Puritans in Maryland for being a danger to public peace, so they didn't want him. Well, of course, the allies to the commissioners didn't want him and found him to be a risk. He ended up being released five weeks later on the condition that he agreed not to interfere with the government. Based on this, it is likely that Fendall was aware he had been appointed governor at this time. So, you know, you wonder if the message had come across from England in time. It looks like he was aware of it to make that promise. One thing that Lord Baltimore noted in his instructions to Governor Fendall was that he wanted individuals to, quote, have liberty of conscience and free exercise of their religion, end quote. Which brings us back to the present problem of control over the colony's affairs. Fendall is, is Baltimore's guy, but Baltimore isn't running the government right now. Lord Baltimore continues by appointing his younger brother, Philip Calvert, to serve as an advisor to the government. In 1657, Fendall leaves for England, likely to get some direction on what to do since he is technically the governor but not allowed to do anything. At this point, Cecil Calvert has a legal right over the colony but no control over its affairs of government. And everyone's waiting for Oliver Cromwell and the Council of State to decide this stalemate. A grand assembly is held in September of 1657 with Lord Baltimore recognized as the proprietor, but Captain William Fuller, who's the commissioner's ally, recognized as the leader of the assembly. The assembly bans second crops of tobacco in the same season, so you can only plant one crop per year now. It authorized the killing of wolves, and it dismissed the charges against Josias Fendall. It was a short session compared to the one held three years prior, and again, probably because everybody's waiting around to figure out what's going to happen. At the same time, Captain Fuller gets caught up in a movement after a missionary visits Maryland. And that movement would be the Quaker movement. Shortly after this assembly, an agreement was reached between Lord Baltimore and the Virginia commissioners that restored full government rights back to Lord Baltimore and Governor Fendall. Part of the agreement allowed people who opposed Lord Baltimore and the proprietary government free leave to exit the colony without harassment. So basically, you're not going to get thrown in jail like Fendall was for threat to the public peace. You are being given free leave to exit the colony. That's an important element here to maintaining peace through the transition. In April 1658, another General Assembly was held, this time recognizing Josiah Svendal as governor. And uh, he has actually returned now from England over the winter, so he is there in person. A law is passed that anyone involved in the previous insurrections by the commissioners of Virginia, 
including those elected to government thereafter, those folks are no longer allowed to serve in government, so you're banned from government. A 100-pound tobacco bounty was placed on the heads of wolves. The new assembly also banned second plantings of tobacco. So again, we see these repetitive laws basically in place. But that's because you're dealing with totally different people, and they're not totally sure what's on the books. The assembly goes through just like the assembly before when there was a transition, and passes a series of acts on a variety of topics, undoubtedly rewriting the laws that had been rewritten themselves a few years earlier. And of course, they passed a law that dealt with drunkenness. The moderates would be restored, just as the parliamentarian rule is crumbling in England. And so Maryland is actually well positioned for the next decade. Next week, we go back to the Massachusetts Bay Colony to check in on them, and if you'll recall, their pine tree shilling, and see if their relationship with England continues to be as good as it was the last time we visited. And we'll talk about that next time on Historical Context.